This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. George Junescu, who's the host of a fine music program which precedes mine here on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, AM 740. George always says as he shuffles on down the long corridor out to the parking lot, don't do anything until I get into my car. George is a big fan of the show, and I, I love him, and I, I appreciate his support. He listens to the program, and it gets him all the way up north, up into uh, Simcoe County, where he resides. And uh, so it's nice to be uh, some company for George. He always says, don't do anything until I get back. So while he's making his way to the car, I thought tonight I would just wax a little baseball if I could, a little sports analogy, because I'm looking across the road out my window uh, to Lamport Stadium, and, uh, and I see the... Uh, the stadium lights there, and it just reminds me of baseball. And, of course, we're right into the thick of uh, baseball. Not that the Jays are anything to write home about, however. And I, I got a, a confession to make. I feel like the last couple of weeks, I haven't been bringing my A game. I haven't been comfortable in the batter's box. I haven't been seeing the ball real well. Tim Spreen's in the, in the uh, other room waving me off, but it's true. Uh, uh, not that my, I mean, my guests have been exemplary. They're, my guests are always bringing the heat. Uh, but I've just felt a little off. But tonight, tonight I'm feeling good, damn good as a matter of fact. So I'm going to slather on the pine tar, gently tap my cleats with my baseball bat, and I'm going to swing for the fences tonight. So I'm, I'm going to do my darndest to bring you uh, uh, an exemplary program. And I'm certainly going to be aided in that. Uh, if it fails, <laughs> it won't be my guest's fault because she always brings an A game. Uh, we're going to talk about chemtrails tonight. This is something I've talked about in the past. Actually, George reminded me I did a program on chemtrails about two years ago. It's time we revisit, and I'll tell you why. I've been getting a lot of emails, and also uh, thanks to Twitter, uh, people are sending me photographs uh, just stopping the car and looking up in the sky and taking with their cell phones, cameras, uh, these incredible pictures of these strange patterns. We've all seen them by now. These strange uh, crisscrossing uh, patterns in the sky, these white contrails, one would normally think, jet exhaust, condensation trails, uh, but strange patterns, like someone's playing a game of X's and O's in the heavens. And they don't dissipate. 
quickly. They last for hours, and then sometimes they'll spread out. And then a couple hours later, you look up in the what was once this brilliant azure sky is now covered in this strange haze. Not those big Homer Simpson-type clouds. You remember the, 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 the opening credits on The Simpsons? Those, uh, a Homer Simpson sky, that's the kind of sky I remember as a child. You don't see that anymore, or rarely. What are those crisscrossing contrails all about? We're going to find out. It's called geoengineering, folks. And you're going to learn tonight who's spraying them and why. And perhaps most importantly, what we can all do about it. I'm about to welcome a journalist and author who's going to discuss precisely that. In fact, she came of political age during the COINTELPRO decade of Vietnam, street riots, political assassinations, and all-night rap sessions about the downfall of the establishment. Researching Sub Rosa America included discovering how deeply her U.S. Navy father was enmeshed with the very military-industrial complex she was writing about. And like the characters in the book, learning how every major event and personality in the United States political establishment over the past 40 years is tied in one way or another to the assassination of John F. Kennedy in Dallas. She has a B.A. in creative writing and wrote her master's thesis on uh, historiography, having written for progressive causes all her life, she also ghostwrites, and she also serves as editor of a very fine publication, Paranoia Magazine. A great delight to welcome Ilana Freeland to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Ilana. How are you? Hi, Richard. Good to hear from you. Good to have you on the program. Uh, let's start with a definition for those uh, not familiar. Let's pretend that someone listening tonight has never heard of a chemtrail. Uh, what is your definition? Well, I can characterize it. And many people look up in the sky and they see these long trails and they immediately think it's just more jets, either commercial jets, maybe military jets. Uh, but if a contrail, which is a, a moisture condensation, is not formed at a certain altitude, um, it is not really uh, water condensation. And what we're seeing, these long-lasting contrails, persistent contrails, some call them, uh, these are w what the slang term chemtrails is indicating. And some people are calling them aerosols. Um, either way you look at it, it's not enough. You have to go into it in order to see who's laying these trails, what they're for, and what's in them that is slowly uh, filtering down into our world on the surface. Well, since jet, uh, jet travel became sort of de rigueur sometime, I guess, in the late 50s, you know, with Pan Am and so forth, you would think if they were simply condensation trails, uh, we would have noticed similar patterns, you know, dating back 50, 55 years. But really, people have only started to take notice of these since, what, the mid-90s? That's right, uh, because even though they were doing some of this geoengineering, as you call it, or uh, the other term would be stratospheric aerosols, 
they were laying them back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, a lot was going on during the Cold War. But they really stepped it up when the counterpart of the chemtrails was brought online. And I'm talking about HARP, the uh, high, frequent, high uh, frequency active auroral research project up in Gakona, Alaska. This is an array that of radio. Really... This is an array of radio antennas up in the Copper Valley which is designed to do what? Yes. And um, it was supposedly, when it came online uh, in about 95, it actually came a little sooner, as do many military projects, than the public was informed of. Um, It was dubious to people up in Gakona, Alaska, and one of those was a sharp uh, naturopathic doctor named uh, Nick Begich. And Nick lived near it, and he is the first one who came out with a book on the project, and he called it Angels Don't Play This Harp. That was published in 1995, and that was the very first thing I read in 1996. Before that, I had no idea. I was researching very different things than uh, what was going on in the sky over my head. So HARP, and we'll get back to HARP in a, in, a, in a little bit later, but HARP working in concert now with this aerosol chemtrail spraying campaign is what's really uh, taking place today. But, but back to the, the, uh, the contents of these chemtrails. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I traveled to, to Southern California a few years ago for the TV program, and I spoke to some researchers on the ground, and they were testing well water, they were testing soil, and the thing that, that, that jumped out at them, just the levels of aluminum oxide off the chart, off the chart, Alana. What, yeah, what, 6,000 times uh, what the norm was. And, and this is, this, is there any other plausible explanation for aluminum oxide getting into the soil. I mean, it does occur naturally in some degree, but not to explain 6,000, 6,000% hikes in, 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 in the content, I'm guessing. No, no, nothing else explains it. I mean, if you live in an industrial area, you might make a case for aluminum oxide coming from some of the industrial pollution. But in most of these places, and Dane Wigington uh, speaks very much about this in the work that he does and uh, in Mike Murphy's film, Why in the World Are They Spraying? It's pretty much the entire, uh, the entire case is built upon this spreading of aluminum and then there are two other things coming down and that would be uh, the barium and the strontium. And so with the aluminum oxide though, what you're looking at is a heavy metal, it's reflective, and um, it is uh, ground down to nanoparticle size. I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny. And what the military used to call chaff during the Cold War, um, yes, this is in part what they're doing now. They're dropping chaff on us that is basically nanoparticle, aluminum, barium, and strontium. And each one of those plays a different role for a different military purpose. Um, I think we need to bring in, before we just go further into, and I do want to talk about barium for sure, does anyone um, remember uh, a, uh, something that came out 
back in the 90s, 1996. It was called New World Vistas, Air and Space Power for the 21st Century. It was put out by the U.S. Air Force Scientific Advisory Board, and it detailed three imminent revolutions uh, in military. One was called, actually, Revolution in Military Affairs, RMA. It was about asymmetric warfare. It was about what is called full-spectrum dominance. And what full-spectrum dominance means is that everything in life should be weaponized so that it would uh, increase superiority in the coming space age. And um, the other two were the geopolitical revolution of a single dominant global power not seen since Rome. And that's straight from the document, not seen since Rome. Uh, and then the other third part would be the information revolution, particularly a dissemination. So really what we're looking at now uh, is a single dominant power since the Cold War ended in 1991. And um, if I, I know a lot of people are confused as to how this technology, which I'm, I'm hope, hoping to elucidate this hour, how this could be allowed in the world and how no one can really stop it or deter it. And it is because of this single power not since Rome that has, um, has been allowed, uh, as you know, we're trillions of dollars in debt to supposedly the Chinese, they have all our bonds. Uh, wh why are we allowed to continue and why is our military allowed to uh, dominate in the full spectrum in every way possible? And that, that is the question that um, led me to write this book is, yes, I am not a plasma physicist. Uh, on the other hand, there are so many expert scientists now who are either losing their lives, losing their jobs, or are uh, in fear and saying nothing that really the ball has been put in the court of the common people like me. Ilana Freeland and is with I, us. Ilana, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out, we'll come back, and I want to drill down a little bit deeper into uh, the nature of chemtrails before we get into uh, the, the, the who and the why. Uh, we are speaking about geoengineering, aerosol, chemtrail spraying, and harp. Ilana Freeland on the line. Glad you're with us. Back with more in a moment. Thank you. Ilana Freeland is here, editor of Paranoia Magazine, and she's currently working on a magnum opus uh, dealing with aerosol, chemtrail spraying, and harp. Uh, but Ilana also emailed me uh, earlier in the week with a horrible story out of Bakersfield, California, where no fewer than nine police officers uh, took their batons and literally beat a man to death who is apparently intoxicated, although that wouldn't excuse for a minute what, what transpired just moments later when police arrived, one of them uh, with a canine unit, and, and basically sicked his uh, German shepherd on this man. The man was heard from across the street. People were awoken from their, from their beds because of the sound of the batons cracking against this man's head. Uh, the man died. And uh, police then started confiscating eyewitnesses' cell phones and uh, going into their houses without warrants, demanding cell phones. Uh, just a horrible, horrible story. And uh, I contrast that with a picture of a, a police officer here in Toronto, one of Toronto's finest, 
uh, who was, uh, didn't know anyone was around, he actually was seen bending over and tying a homeless man's shoes, uh, which just goes to show you. You know, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the police uh, forces around North America, we have angels and we have demons. And let's all pray that the angels outnumber the demons. Alana Freeland is here talking uh, chemtrail spraying. Uh, Elena, let's just talk for a moment more about the aluminum oxide because this is important. I, I remember speaking to someone who had been out to, up to Mount Shasta. This is a pristine area of California. And again, the aluminum oxide uh, in the soil was just off the charts. And an official was questioned about this, and they tried to explain it away by suggesting that the skis, of course, a lot of people do cross-country and downhill skiing in Mount Shasta. The skis were responsible. The shavings were coming off the skis. I, I mean, that is just beyond the pale <laughs> ridiculous. But the other th- interesting thing is I, 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 I've seen is the, the, the rates of Alzheimer's and dementia in, in and around uh, Los Angeles County. I've seen the stats. It's at epidemic levels, and, and there is a, a relationship between aluminum oxide and Alzheimer's. Uh, I mean, what more there do is. people need to know? There is. You're right. And, and then uh, another important facet of this is that the aluminum oxide is uh, alkalinizing the soil to the point that, uh, and it's a desiccant, so the vegetation is uh, is turning brown. Whole forests, says Dane Wigington, are turning brown and dying. Um, and the aluminum, I mean, if you think about it, would they be spreading aluminum to do that? I mean, there are actually people who think that. Um, in a way, it could be because when organic farmers are driven out, uh, of their land because they, their soil no longer can produce the quality of vegetables that they could sell as organic, then they're, they're strapped for cash and in swoop the agribiz uh, vultures to buy up the land for a song and turn it into another big giant agribiz. And in a way, that is true. People are being driven from their farms. This has been going on for a long time. And no doubt Monsanto... oxide just adds a new facet. And no doubt Monsanto or Dow has come up with a, a special seed that just thrives in highly alkanized soil. Yes, it's aluminum resistant. And uh, if, if that seems like a coincidence, I can say to your listeners, I no longer believe in coincidences. Nor I. Uh, that is definitely the plan. And barium, barium has been linked with uh, high blood pressure and, and, and heart disease, uh, has it not? Yes. Again, that is not the reason that they're dumping barium on us. The barium is a fabulous conductor for communications. And this is really the most interesting part to me because, to my mind, uh, the what in the world and why in the world are they spraying films, which are both free on the Internet, by the way, not to be missed, uh, they go very deeply into the aluminum side. But the barium has to do with communications. And now we're in the land of military, and that's called, I think it's called C3I or C34 or, or C4 now. It is uh, communications 
And um, there are many, many facets to that communications. As you know, everyone's going wireless, and it's a wireless world. And for the military, which has its, its own frequencies, uh, it, they, they want as many bands as possible for all of their, I mean, all the way from drones and, uh, you know, the UAVs up in the air spying on us uh, to uh, things going on in, in, in real war theaters, such as in uh, Syria or the, or the Middle East. So the barium is very important for that. That we are suffering from the barium by breathing it in and it's, it's coming in through our skin because the skin is a respiratory organ. Oh, well, you know, there's always collateral damage to the American military, and that's uh, not something to really uh, keep from doing something for. One of the things that's really going on, Elana. One of the things that uh, we heard, and again, Michael Murphy brought this out in in, in what on earth are they spraying? Uh, that someone attended this geoengineering conference that was taking place, I believe, down in San Diego a few years ago, and there the scientists were talking about this master plan, this last last ditch effort to thwart the effects of global warming, uh, and that would be if they could suspend these aluminum oxide particulates in the atmosphere for long enough, it would, uh, it would cause the, uh, the, the, the rays of the sun to reflect back up into the atmosphere. Uh, and, and this might, as, as uh, you know, it's kind of a Hail Mary pass, but it might, uh, it might uh, forestall uh, global warming. Uh, and even though they realize that pumping millions of tons, literally millions of tons of aluminum oxide would have a huge impact on the health of the population. They said, one day we might have to do this. But some are theorizing that the scientists were basically telling us, well, we're telling you we might do it in the future, but we're really doing it right now. What do you feel, what do you think about that? Oh, I I think you're right. That's exactly what's going on. In fact, I comment on that in the book that, you know, everything's in the subjunctive, as if it were all in the future. It's being done now, and um, as far as the reflective, reflecting sunlight uh, to prevent global warming, this is a real conundrum, and unless you go deeply into uh, Bernard J. Eastland's patent for HARP, you cannot understand what this, quote, global warming means, because what we're seeing now is extreme weather. And as you know, they're shifting from the term global warming to the, the more uh, roomy, uh, innocuous term of climate change. And this is because this cirrus cloud cover that we're all under, and if you're seeing azure blue skies up there in Canada, down here we're not seeing any of that anymore. We're seeing a pale blue, hazy sky almost every day. And uh, this has to do with the, uh, the, the spraying and the idea that the aluminum and barium would then, because they're both highly reflective, that they would be reflecting sunlight back. The truth is that the cirrus cloud cover is incubating us, and with the added uh, the ionization going on because of HARP and other ionospheric heaters in the world, uh, we are actually in a sort of Faraday cage now and being uh, baked. However, 
that global warming, this is the real global warming, the, the warming that HARP is producing through these heavy metals in our air, and that is how it happens. These just get ignited because they're, the electrons are moving so fast, it's all ionized, we're breathing ionized air now, and they can take that with HARP, which has a steering and a mirror capability, and they can produce weather systems, they can um, bring snow, what was it recently? It was uh, three feet of snow on, on our Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and in, uh, I can't remember where, Vermont or was it in the Midwest? I mean, so many of these extreme weathers are being produced because of the, in my mind, and I, this is the case I make in the book, because of experimentation necessary to learn how to use this tool of weather manufacture for the sake of warfare, etc. And the story of geoengineering and ameliorating geo, uh, the global warming, that is a cover story beyond belief. And I can't even listen to David Keith uh, or, or, or Ken Caldera. I can't listen to scientists who have been embedded in the uh, military establishment lie to the people. Maybe they don't know they're lying. Maybe they believe what they've been told. But then well, where is their science then? Because it's obvious that global warming is being created by this, uh, what I call a, a, a one-two punch of chemtrails and harp. That's how I see it. Ilana Freeland is with us. We're discussing geoengineering, aerosol, chemtrail spraying, and HARP, and she is uh, writing a major uh, book about this very topic. When can we expect that uh, to be uh, published, Ilana? I'm writing it for Feral House Press, and Adam Parfrey has assured me that it will be out in 2014, and my hope is spring 2014. Not a moment uh, too soon. You, you were mentioning the weaponization uh, and, and there was a, a defense white paper back, I guess, in the, I'm not sure when, maybe the late 80s, and they talked about uh, the name of the, the white paper was Owning the Weather by 2025. Uh, That's right. And weather a, is a force multiplier. Mm-hmm. Yes, apparently they're way ahead of schedule. Way ahead, and they normally are. So uh, spell it out for us, Ilana, then. If, if the uh, thwarting global warming by... Uh, spraying these aluminum particulates is a mere cover story, and I agree with you. Then, what is the main objective? Is the depopulation or the causing you know chronic illnesses just an in, an, an intended or unintended consequence? Uh, but what is the main goal here? Well, I I see several things, and um, if I were to uh, just read the chapter titles, it'll be very evident. Um, okay, first, weather. Uh, the ability to control weather as a force multiplier. And again, remember that very, very important military policy of full-spectrum dominance. Full-spectrum dominance is why uh, a lot of anthropologists and a lot of universities and, and, and many disparate subjects that you wouldn't think had anything to do with warfare have all been uh, uh, weaponized. And um, this is part of the revolution in military affairs. So weather control number one. Then, um, then there's the weather derivatives. And again, uh, why in the world goes into this very well? There is a Wall Street 
uh, objective to make money off of uh, weather futures. And there's an in-crowd that includes insurance uh, people, uh, you know, calamity insurance people. It includes uh, uh, all the hedge funds and, and the slick guys on Wall Street, all uh, hoping, vying for an inside track on what HARP's plans are for the weather. Because uh, some people, when I tell them that I believe that Katrina, Sandy, uh, and this latest tornado uh, uh, in, in the tornado alley down in Oklahoma, these tornadoes, that these are all harp experimentation. Why would they do it to our own country, they say? Well, you know, there's a variety of reasons. Along with the weather derivatives, you've got to think, how would this make money? And what I name in, in the book is uh, Naomi Klein's excellent study of disaster capitalism. And that's what we have here. We have uh, two things going on. One, we need, you know, military says we need to experiment with this stuff. And we can't go to Canada and do it. We can't go to South America and do it. That will create an international incident, so let's do it at home. At the same time, what can we do that we really want to um, change in our country? Well, you know, it'd be nice to redo that port down in, in uh, New Orleans. It'd be nice to redo the New York, New Jersey port, too, clean it up a little bit. So we'll move the weather systems in there uh, and uh, experiment, testing. They need lots and lots of tests to understand how to handle hurricanes, how to handle tornadoes. And, you know, I haven't even gone to Fukushima at this uh, point. I mean, yeah. Let's take a time out. Uh, I wrote that Hold on, Ilana. I got to jump in here. I apologize. I got to jump in. We'll take a time out. That's okay. And uh, we'll come back. I'm just, you know, my my cynical brain racing here thinking how else could they use this? Let's suppose some congressman down in uh, in Southern California is not voting the way they're supposed to on some appropriations bill, so you decide to bring horrible drought conditions to their region. Uh, as punishment. Let's find out if that's possible. Ilana Freeland on geoengineering, aerosol, chemtrail spraying, and harp right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Uh, just to spell back, I mentioned those devils with the Bakersfield Police Department who beat uh, a man to death, a uh, father of three uh, beautiful young girls. I've posted that story on uh, my homepage at richardserrett.com. I just wanted to, to draw your attention to that, and if you have a chance to visit the uh, the website, click on that story and, and read it. It's not pleasant, but uh, some for, sometimes we uh, we really have to uh, confront the ugly truth with eyes wide open uh, rather than avert our gaze. That's just part of being human. Uh, right now, Ilana, <clears throat> excuse me, Getting uh, kind of choked up about that. and uh, Anyway, Ilana Freeland is uh, with us as we're discussing geoengineering, aerosol, chemtrail spraying, and HARP. Uh, Ilana, one of the things that uh, people, when they're emailing me, uh, dozens and dozens every week now, and many of them with pictures uh, of uh, these strange chemtrail formations in the sky, and they'll say that they'll, they'll call the, uh, the airport... They'll call the local uh, newsroom at the TV station or the radio station or the city desk at the newspaper, and they'll say, what's going on? Uh, and <clears throat> they'll basically uh, be answered with silence or ridicule. And the thing is, uh, if this spraying is going on, 
Somebody knows about it, obviously. Uh, but but it, it's still at that level of, you know, here you are on the conspiracy show and, and uh, people sometimes say when they come on this program, geez, you know, I'm talking about an important issue and I don't want it to get lumped in with all these other conspiracies. But this truly is a conspiracy. There is a conspiracy of yeah. silence going on. And people cannot get information from the people that are entrusted to safeguard our safety and our health. That's what's got me so riled up. Yes, and, and um, I think it would help people if they could compare it with the Manhattan Project, which uh, I believe it is Manhattan Project, too. This, this technology, electromagnetic technology, I call it uh, in the title of the book, which is just a working title at this point, but it's called Chemtrails and Harp, Persistent Contrails, Aerosols, and the Tesla Death Star. And it, this, is, this is how... We will be remembered for this era. It will be the electromagnetic era, whereas the last one with Manhattan Project One was the nuclear era. And if people recall, most people are too young to recall, but it was highly secret. It was absolutely unspoken of. And, um, and scientists were silenced. They signed confidentiality agreements upon which the lives of them and their families depended. So uh, we're there again, and the fact that there's so much silence in uh, in the airports, uh, weather stations, etc., it isn't just ignorance. Now it may be ignorance among the the lower members, uh, workers at these places, but among the high uh, members, we have some. I think uh, Will Thomas in his book, Chemtrails Confirmed quoted a few guys from airports that said that, um, you know, and, and who worked for airlines, that they had been forced to sign confidentiality agreements and not to speak of, uh, of what they were going to spray out of their planes. Do we know what, kind of, what the, kind of planes are being, are these like tr- military transport planes, like a, a Hercules? Uh, what kind some of, of them? Some of them are C-130s, uh, 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 and some of them are regular commercial airliners that are, uh, are, have canisters on them with special spray circuits. Uh, in in the uh, usually in the um, what is it called the where people go to the bathroom and they hold that container, it's usually been converted, and then there are uh, interestingly there are there appear to be drones, uh, UAVs unmanned that are <clears throat> up there and and look like commercial airliners, uh, and then of course. Military flights occur at a, a different altitude from commercial airliners, so that has to be worked out. But always when they're picking up people on the uh, various flights on the radar at the, uh, the airports, air, uh, they have been forewarned that certain of them are military. It's, uh, it's a, an experimental operation and to just let it go. All right, let's grab a phone call here. People, uh, people are anxious to talk to you, Alana. Let's welcome Tara from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Tara, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I just wanted to thank your guest very much for having the courage to expose um, this very serious issue. And um, I guess my question that comes to mind is, does she, is she, are you aware of any souls that are very um, courageous, as in, say, celebrities or Congress members that are 
speaking out about and exposing this issue to the public because it's just so depressing. Are you and you're in Canada, right? Yes, um, yes, and it's just yes, so in depressing. your country. I can't speak to, but um, certainly down here, we have had several people who have attempted to speak out and have one way or another either been marginalized or silenced. Dennis Kucinich comes right to mind, uh, and he was he was the first person to bring the Space Preservation Act of 2011. Ilana, I'm going to jump in here, Ilana. We're going to take another time out, and we'll get the rest of your answer after the break. Tara and Hamilton, hold on. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The top of the hour is nigh, so if you want to get in with a question or comment for Ilana Freeland as we talk about chemtrails, now is the time to do it. Uh, Tara and Hamilton called in wondering if there are any uh, vocal supporters, uh, high-profile vocal supporters in the United States. Ilana, you mentioned former Representative Dennis Kucinich, who spoke out, in fact, I believe um, uh, authored or co-authored this this bill uh, to prevent the weaponization of space. Uh, so continue along uh, with, with, with that comment. Yes, and it, uh, that was in 2001. And here, in order to uh, kill a bill, you put it in committee uh, and then just let it uh, evaporate there. And that's what happened. He brought it out three times. And um, the second time, he had to eliminate all mention of chemtrails. And he had had it in the uh, first bill. And he had had it under the same weaponry uh, that goes under the title of covert weapons. So that was eliminated the second time. The third time it was eviscerated even more, and the fourth time even more. And finally it just sort of disappeared. You know, uh, other than that, uh, there, is, there is more action in Europe than there is here in the States. And, and, and I assume in Canada, or I think I would have heard, um, the Australians and New Zealanders are the most active of all uh, that I know. I hear from them. I'm on one of their uh, lists, and I get a lot of material from them. They are on fire, and they are doing protests in, in their cities, uh, but nothing can stop it. This is the most interesting part. Well, I was sorry. I'm sorry to hear you say that because that was my next point. Is you know, as we draw oh, yeah. to a close here over the next ten minutes, I was hoping that you could leave us with some, some good news. Okay, so let's assume that we can't, you know, wrest control of these C-130 transport planes and stop the spraying. At least there must be something we can do to perhaps, I don't know, boost our immunity and protect ourselves from the ill effects of the spraying. Oh, definitely. And, um, you know, I hope to include several ideas that have been given to me by people. For myself, I, I have my own plan. And what has occurred, what occurred to me as a sort of illuminating moment was that the animals that um, uh, people eat and their dairy products, that these animals are breathing the same air I am and that I would do well to minimize, one, eating the animal, and two, eating what they have discharged through their, their milk, their butter, their cheese, especially on heavily sprayed days. And a lot of people don't even look up to know when that is. And, of course, that would be the first thing I'd say is start looking up. 
start figuring out the cloud configuration. And someone I would recommend on the Internet who puts up a lot of YouTubes was a weatherman. You, pro you probably remember his name is uh, Scott Stevens. Yes, former weatherman at Pocatello. TV weatherman. Yeah, out of Pocatello, and he Idaho. he a lot of ideas. He's great about because looking at the clouds and how to read them. Yeah, I mean, here's a guy. He was a former weatherman who basically had to quit at, in good conscience because he said, "I couldn't, with a straight face, give the weather anymore." Once he figured out, he said that <laughs> yeah. it wasn't just some weather being manipulated; it was all of the weather being manipulated. Yes, yes, and the other thing I would say, Richard, is that we must educate ourselves. We must, and it, to me, it's been so exciting to do the research. There aren't that many books. There was the Harp book in 95 by Nick Begich. There was another book by Jerry Smith in 98. There was uh, Rosalie Bertel's book in 2000, Planet Earth, The Latest Weapon of War. And then Jerry wrote another book, Weather Warfare, in 2006 before he died. And I have questions about that. Um, so there's, there's books, but mainly on the Internet, there are some amazing people doing incredible research. What they're doing Dopplers. They're examining them. They're, they're, they're on it. They're looking at HARP every day and when it's HARPstatus.com and what HARP is doing. Is it fired up? They're examining various storms. Um, this is a real democratic movement, and I'm excited by it, even if I, have a, I live in the country that has a military that can't be stopped. I feel nothing but hope that an error will be made and that the people will be ready because we will be educated to know what to do because we have studied this technology. We must learn about this technology. Well, hopefully there are a few uh, patriotic flag officers who know what's going on, disagree with what's going on. There must be, and, and who are willing to, I don't know, at some point step in and put a stop to this. Or am I being naive? Well, they're putting their lives on the line. I mean, so many, as you will remember back in the 90s and the early 2000s, so many microbiologists and, and various uh, geneticists uh, had very strange deaths. Yeah, they turned so face down, accidents. found face down in the Potomac River, I guess. So many. Oh, I, I mean, I have a list of two dozen, and I'm sure that's not all of them. So it, I can't expect the experts to come forward. Uh, we have to do it. We have to study. We have to learn to think. We have to talk to each other and correct each other. Like when I'm putting this book out, I'm sure I'm going to make some errors, and I expect people to correct me. You know, we have to do this as a democratic action because we are under force whether we can see it, whether there's soldiers in the street or not, we are under force now, and I certainly am in the United States. So let me see if I understand this correctly. So once you, you uh, uh, basically uh, send all these particulates into the atmosphere, uh, mm -hmm. aluminum, barium, strontium, then you fire up HARP, which is yes. superheating the ionosphere with, uh, with these ions, I guess. Uh, well, what you're doing is you're activating the plasma up in the uh, ionosphere, and plasma is the fourth state of matter. It, a lot of people say it's a gas. No, it's not exactly a gas. It actually has a gas a substance fluid nature, right. and that it, once it's activated, then it, they, they 
pop out a bubble in the ionosphere, which is scary enough, and then that's a vacuum. It sucks up our atmosphere into the plasma ionosphere, and then that is then circulated back down and brought here to, uh, to interact chemically with the heavy metals being laid by the chemtrails. Right. So that any part can be activated. I mean, you're right. They're doing this over every NATO country. I, I know guess, that. I'm just wondering as how far precise as China it is. China and Russia, I don't know. I'm just wondering how precise a weapon is it? Like, for example, I've heard things like that they can move the jet stream around now with HARP. But yes, could they? Definitely. Could they, for example, you know, during the Iraq War, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, there were stories uh, of um, entire, um, you know, brigades. Uh, from Iraq's mm -hmm. uh, army, basically throwing down their weapons, they were they were out of their minds. They were so confused and disoriented, uh, and it was suggested that this was being done uh, with HARP. Uh, can HARP yes. be used for mind control? Yes, and and I hadn't gotten that far in my list. That is definitely one of the large parts of this. And you're asking how it can focus. It focuses by mirrors and by all the towers, the Gwen Towers, the Cell Towers, the Nexrads. Uh, we even have a mobile tower called an SBX-1 that was parked off of Florida just before uh, the hurricane happened in Haiti. So we have many, we have a web of, uh, of towers of uh, transmitters and receivers waiting for HARP to ionize all these metal particulates that are in our atmosphere, activate them, ionize them, and then the HARP steering mechanism with mirrors on HARP and on the satellites beginning to uh, reflect those in the direction they want to push it. And that includes the jet stream. I mean, uh, it's an amazing weapon. What can I say? This puts radiation in the shade, and it can only end badly, as you and I know. But meanwhile, we must learn about what we're breathing, what we're living around, and I haven't mentioned the diseases that are being piggybacked on all these nanoparticulates being activated in our environment. Morgellons is one of them. And people have heard that term. There are many diseases being uh, that will be piggybacked right. uh, yes. well, on I, these particulars. I've been meaning to do a activated. show for some time on Morgellons. That, that's one of those strange uh, ailments that not even doctors are willing to, to you know, to, to diagnose. Uh, and, exactly. And, and, uh, and when you see the Morgellons, which I have because I'm very good friends with Clifford Carnicum, who is probably most expert uh, of all, and you can see his materials at carnicominstitute.com. Uh, he has many papers and many photographs. Um, Morgellons is nanoparticles, nanofibers that are coupling with the iron in our blood. And some, my guess is we all have breathed in the fibers, but obviously not all of us have the fibers crawling out of our skin and, and under our skin. There's some other element which I believe, and I cannot prove it, but I'm going to argue for it in the book, that this, because some of these nanofibers have 
microprocessors in them, if you can imagine. They're already tiny, tiny, tiny. And then they have microprocessors that these can be activated remotely. And boom, suddenly you've got fibers crawling out of your skin. I mean, this is all uh, sort of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde terror of experimentation but it isn't like we haven't had it before. Non-consensual uh, experimentation on American citizens is sort of uh, de rigueur. This is how they've done it since I was born. Well, yeah. I mean, back in the, uh, I guess, the 30s, we had the uh, Tuskegee Airman syphilis uh, experiments. But now it's like, the, the, writ large, all of us now are in the uh, in the petri dish all of us are being poked and prodded and experimented upon without our consent this is we are living literally in a prison planet ilana we are and i wanted to say that for the sake of the country that my immigrant uh, grandmother taught me to love that <clears throat> america is the hand on this weapon but the brains behind this hand uh that's something different. And I would look to the Bilderbergers, I would look to Council of Foreign Relations, I would look to the major central banks, I would look to IMF World Bank. So, in other words, this is, global, this is globalization. This is what it is. We all thought it was going to be, oh, it takes a village to raise a child. No, this is what globalization always was in the minds of those who planned it. Hurt us into the cities uh, where we can be controlled and uh, experimented upon and uh, and kept not it's not about necessarily depopulation so much as keeping us uh, all sort of at a, at a level of a, a chronic illness uh, where we're dependent yes, on upon because uh, the pharma big pharma and the big medical uh, industry they need dollars I mean everything is a business model under capitalism. And um, the other thing I wanted to say when I was telling you about the derivatives, the we got about derivatives thir- we got about, is, remember, yeah. disaster creates lots of jobs, and this is how they're going to boost the economy after they scrape the cream off of it. Lovely. All right, Yolana, uh, a real pleasure having you on the program. We'll, um, we'll bring you back on. Uh, you are just a treasure trove of information, and I appreciate you taking the time tonight. Ilana Freeland, thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. Please visit the website, richardserrett.com, and uh, some great articles up there, including a study which shows Walmart employees rely on food stamps. And a great story, too, about Amelia Earhart's plane, possibly now located some 70 years after her disappearance. richardserrett.com
Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. I want to give a, uh, a special hello to Dave of DJ Pools in Brantford, Ontario, who uh, I know is listening tonight. Dave is um, up in his 70s, but a, a loyal, loyal fan. I had a, an occasion to, uh, to meet Dave. Uh, my sister, she gets her, uh, her, her pool supplies from Dave in Brantford. She said, oh, you got to come and meet Dave. He's a big fan, and he listens to all your shows. He loves you. He loves you. Come. So I was in Brantford uh, visiting Mom very recently, and uh, she was out there getting some chemicals for her, uh, her pool. She, she's just opening it up, and she said, he's here, and can you come out? you got five minutes. So I, I, Mom and I jumped in her Toyota Corolla, and we headed out Highway 2, and... Uh, couldn't miss it. It was right next to the Tim Hortons. We were, and uh, uh, she didn't tell Dave I was coming, and he turned around, and there I was, and he just hug, bear hugged me, <laughs> just gave me a bear hug, and uh, what a, a sweet man t- took a picture of me, and very computer savvy. From you know, uh, people up in their seventies are very computer savvy. It's the fastest growing population online. Because, you know, they want to keep track of their, uh, their grandchildren who are living in Vancouver or Los Angeles or whatever. Uh, they know how to Skype and all this. So we said, oh, I'm going to post this on your Facebook page. And I said, great, because I don't know how to do it. Anyway, Dave, if you're listening, it was great to meet you. And, and uh, thank you for your support. And also want to say hello to Rodney. Rodney, who, who uh, lays claim to being my number one fan in the USA, he just found my podcast over the Memorial Day weekend. And he says since then, he's listened to something like 60 hours uh, of the podcasts, and uh, had a very, very kind uh, email that he sent me. So, Rodney, welcome aboard. Glad you found me. The the people who listen on podcasts on the to the podcast, it's amazing. Uh, I received an email from a gentleman in the outback in Australia who delivers the mail by moped, and he while listening to my podcast. Uh, so, and, and an artist in New York who's uh, you know got this loft and he's doing these huge canvases, these huge you know, panels of art, listening to the podcast. He says it's turned way up. Uh, it's very gratifying to, 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 uh, to know that I'm connecting with you in that way. So uh, if, you, uh, if you can, subscribe to the podcast. You can do it, I believe, through the, the website, uh, zoomerradio.ca, somewhere on there. Again, I'm a techno-peasant. I can't even subscribe to my own podcast. If some of you figure out how to do it, drop me a line. Anyway, uh, I can, well, how can I do it? Tim, I can do it from my phone. There's a podcast app. Thank you. All right. How do I turn my phone on? That's stu- <laughs> Can we start with that? All right. Uh, anyway, thank you uh, all for welcoming me uh, into your homes uh, at this late hour, into your den, your loft. <clears throat> your loft. Sorry about that. I need a lozenge is what I need. Uh, or perhaps your bedroom. Uh, I'm very privileged to uh, to be welcomed into your homes uh, a couple of hours every week. But like all good Canadian boys, I always remove my shoes uh, before entering an abode. That's I don't know. If that's a, a particular to to Canada. You always can tell if you're in a Canadian home when you open the door. All the shoes are piled by the door. You ever notice that? That's a thing that we do in Canada. We take off our shoes. I think they do that in Japan as well, but in Canada we do. We take off our shoes or our boots or whatever before entering a house. Anyway, uh, listen, I, um, I'm delighted to have uh, 
a certified crackpot historian on the program tonight. We had to track him down. Tricky guy. Uh, he's really sort of locked into the, the fringe culture down in the United States and traveling uh, to a lot of the conspiracy. Uh, I think he was just at Conspiracy Con down in, uh, in California, down around Sacramento, I think it is. Uh, and I don't know why, but when he checks into a hotel, he uses an alias. So I don't know whether he's, you know, trying to uh, trying to uh, to avoid uh, black ops or men in black or what. But we found him and he's with us, and he just penned an extraordinary piece uh, that's coming uh, going to be published in an upcoming uh, issue of Paranoia Magazine, one of my favorite publications. Uh, like to make use of the good people from Paranoia Magazine. Recently had Ilana Freeland, the editor uh, of said magazine, on the program. Uh, but right now, Adam Go Rightly. Uh, is with us, and he just wrote this amazing article called The Dead Comedian Conspiracy. Now, uh, my idea of a great date with the mighty Aphrodite, we go out to one of the local comedy clubs, and we love to laugh. And, you know, some of the great luminaries, uh, my, my favorites, you know, the Richard Pryors and the George Carlins, the thing about them was they, didn't, they weren't just making you laugh. They made you think. These guys were philosophers, not just comedians. And, of course, they're both gone. But there's a long list of comedians that checked out, you know, before their time, before their best before date, uh, under somewhat mysterious circumstances. And, and this is the subject of Adam's column, or his article, rather. First of all, let's usher in Adam Go Rightly. Hey, pal. Pal, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, great, Richard. Great to uh, hear your voice. Talk to you again. So uh, what got you uh, on this track about writing about dead comedians like, you know, the, the Lenny Bruce's, of course, and the Freddie Prinze and John Belushi and Sam Kinison and all these, all these guys? What, what, what made you cobble this list together and, and start thinking about how they died and whether they may have been targeted? It's been uh, something that's been rattling around in my brain for many, many years. <laughs> and as I uh, mentioned in the article... <clears throat> It really came from a lot of the uh, mysterious deaths of rock stars that got me thinking along these lines. Let me take you back down memory lane a little bit. As I mentioned in the article, in the mid-70s when I was a teen, there was this uh, insert in uh, the newspaper called Parade Magazine. came out for years and years. And I remember in one issue, uh, there was a uh, list, and this, once again, this was in the mid-70s about... Uh, rock stars who had FBI files on them, and it listed four rock stars, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and John Lennon. And I thought that was kind of strange at the time, you know, and, uh, by 1980, all of them had died, and it made me think, uh, is there something more to this story? And so, as the years passed, I became a student of conspiracy research, and uh, the late, great Mae Russell, as I started listening to some of her old radio shows, she uh, claimed that uh, it was her belief that the Lennon had been part of a uh, conspiracy, that some MKUltra-type uh, assassin had uh, murdered him, you know, because of his political activism, basically, and that uh, a lot of these rock stars were taken out basically because of that. They were a, uh, you know, they were popular with the uh, youth. They were anti-war, and they were people who could rally a lot of people in a short, you know, a short period of time just with their music and their popularity. 
And so, uh, you know, as the years passed, other uh, books came out about this. For instance, uh, Alex Constantine did one for uh, Feral House, uh, something called Covert War on Rock, that uh, went through this laundry list of rock stars with mysterious deaths. And I, when I started thinking about uh, comedians over the years, there seemed to be that same laundry list as well, uh, starting, the course, with uh, Winnie Bruce. Yeah, Lenny, uh, who died in, what was it, 1966. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that came on board before there were comedy clubs. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he would just, he would wax on for, you know, it wasn't, you know, uh, every two minutes there would be like five jokes crammed in there. He would talk for 20 minutes and then maybe at the end of that there might be a laugh and then he'd go off. Very political, this guy. Why do you yeah, think it was he was uh as you mentioned in your monologue there are these uh type of comedians or philosophers they're also iconoclasts, flies in the ointment, you know. Uh, <laughs> they were uh needling the establishment, they were uh, poking fun at organized religions and politicians back in the day, you know, when uh that wasn't done as much and Lenny was one of those and he was uh, you know, part of that uh, counterculture that was coming forth, embracing free speech and sexual liberation, civil rights. Once again, you know, one of those guys opposing the Vietnam War, and he was very open about drug use and, you know, drug experimentation. And uh, uh, he's also very liberal with his uh, language, which got him in uh, trouble with the establishment. You know, his monologues were filled with, quote-unquote, you know, that by, by today's standards seem rather tame. So he uh, got in the crosshairs of the establishment, and uh, a battle ensued. Yeah, it got and to the point after. where his, his entire act, he'd just be reading the transcripts from his court case. That's uh, how it eventually evolved. He was so persecuted, not only for the uh, free speech battles, but... I think he was, you know, they were after him, so there was a lot of drug busts, and uh, it uh, got to the point where his uh, great comedy kind of more evolved into it, this uh, crusade. He'd, yeah, he'd go in some of those later routines and this read the trans, his court transcripts, and basically kind of drove him over the edge. He became a bit of a paranoid wreck, a recluse of sort. He was blackballed from the clubs, you know, because of all of this. He couldn't find work and uh, eventually uh, became a recluse and OD'd in his uh, house in the Hollywood Hills. But there was some curiosity surrounding that uh, overdose. Uh, That's for sure. Such as? Uh, such as, well... One interesting thing is uh, he was uh, at his typewriter uh, right before uh, his death, and he was typing something about a conspiracy. Then he uh, ended up ODing in the bathroom, and there's famous photos of that where it's, uh, he's uh, curled up around the toilet with a needle in his arm. But uh, some of the curious things were that... Uh, in the aftermath, uh, there was no evidence that he uh, of the uh, instruments he used to fix or shoot up. There was just the needle in the arm, and it was admitted that the uh, cops found some syringes uh, uh, underneath the uh, you know in his uh, one of the bathroom's cabinets, and they pulled that out out and set it beside uh, Lenny. 
And so there was all the evidence there that, you know, it was staged. They brought in, you know, the tabloid-type photographers. I was going to say pornographers. You could consider them both. And uh, so, you know, that kind of appears that that, those kind of mechanizations were behind that, that, uh, you know, that's a convenient way to silence people. Absolutely, and discredit them at the same time. Dead, but dead of a heroin overdose. Well, this guy was a useless junkie. Uh, exactly. exactly. All right, we'll uh, come back with Adam Gorightly, certified crackpot historian, 23rd degree Discordian. He's been chronicling fringe culture in an illuminating manner for over two decades, an active contributor to the zine revolution of the late 80s and early 90s. Adam's byline was a familiar sight in many cutting-edge mags, and his articles have appeared in numerous publications such as The Excluded Middle, UFO Magazine, Paranoia, Steam Shovel Press, and 424, the largest soccer ma- magazine in Great Britain. Say what? All right, we'll come back and uh, talk about the dead comedian conspiracy with Adam Gorightly. Stay with us. There's a little bit of the late, great Sam Kinison for you coming back in off the break uh, as we uh, discuss the dead comedian conspiracy. And we'll get to Sam Kinison a little bit later, but we're sort of doing this chronologically with uh, Adam Gorightly, certified crackpot historian, uh, just wrote a uh, tremendous piece for uh, Paranoia magazine uh, of the same name, The Dead Comedian Conspiracy. And we were talking about Lenny Bruce. Here was this true subversive. Uh, who had access to a microphone and, uh, you know, legions of fans uh, really uh, uh, sticking it to the man, if you will, back in the mid-60s and uh, uh, dying under unusual circumstances. Again, uh, here he's found with, uh, with a needle in his arm, but as you pointed out, Adam, uh, you know, not that I know uh, of this world, but what I understand is you, you you normally have to cook the junk, as they say. You gotta, you know, there should have been a spoon uh, and matches to cook the heroin before you inject it. None of that was around. In fact, the police uh, found uh, needles uh, somewhere. I mean, he was he he was a user, uh, but in this case, he was found in the bathroom, and the police who found the body staged the death scene. So they found needles in the apartment and placed them around the body uh, or placed one in his arm and then brought in, I guess, the paparazzi to take this photograph. Uh, so that's, that's Lenny Bruce. I, I wanted to, if we could move on to Freddie Prinze because after reading your article, this was something I wasn't aware of. We all remember, of course, Freddie Prinze, this up-and-coming Latino, uh, Hispanic comic uh, from New York. Uh, had this, you know, runaway smash hit TV show, Chico and the Man, with Eddie Albertson back in the early 70s. I, rem- I, I was a big fan. Scatman Crothers, of course. Uh, but I wasn't aware that he was so politically minded uh, and that he was, in fact, very interested in the JFK assassination. Tell me about that. Yeah, either was I until I started looking into it. And the first thing that uh, kind of raised my eyebrow was that... Uh, I had heard that he was, uh, you know, prior to his uh, suicide or whatever went down with him, that he was spending endless hours watching the the Zabruder film, you know, the film of the uh, JFK assassination, which, uh, you know, probably appeared to a lot of people that he had uh, lost his mind. What was he doing? And there was stories that he had become a drug addict, uh, cocaine head. And so, uh, for a lot of folks, that's all the, you know, the little tidbits they heard. But as I started looking into uh, Freddie's story, uh, you know, as you mentioned, he was a rising star, very uh, young kid when he died, just 22, uh, Chico and the Man with Eddie Albertson and all that. 
Hispanic, uh, you know, somebody, once again, like those uh, rock stars in the 60s, look at the audience uh, he could reach, uh, the youth, the Hispanics, you know, it's kind of like a uh, politician with that vote and that power, and he became politically active. Um, he saw the same show I did, and this is going back to the mid uh, 70s when I was a teen was uh, Geraldo Herrera's Good Night America, and I remember watching that. It was uh, 76 or 77, as I recalled. That was, was the, the first, first time, time yeah. that the Zabruder film had been shown to the American public. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, quite a mind blower. And another comedian <laughs> was the one who brought that to the attention of America, Dick Gregory. Ah, uh, yes. We'll talk, talk about Dick Gregory a little bit more, but well, he sort of defied the odds because here's uh, you know uh, again now up in his eighties, uh, he seemed to uh, he seems to have dodged the uh, I don't know the assassin's bullet or what have you. But Dick Gregory's still going strong and speaking out. But uh, back to Freddie Prince. Now, did did. When he became sort of fascinated uh, or obsessed with the Kennedy assassination, did that start to make its way into his stand-up routine? I really don't uh, know that. Uh, I do know that uh, the reason, uh, you know, after he saw that uh, footage of the uh, Sabruder film, he started uh, communicating with Dick Gregory and Mark Lane, who's a... uh, colleague, you know, both uh, assassination researchers, and he actually, you know, was a wake-up kind of call to arms for Prince, and so, uh, you know, he got his own copy of the Sapruder film, and uh, at one point uh, became so active, he was trying to organize a national telethon to raise funds to launch a new assassination probe, and, uh, you know, uh, Shortly after that, there, there was some activity in the U.S. They had the House Select uh, Committee on Assassinations that looked into all these assassinations. So Yeah, one year after his death in 1978, if, he, he almost made it to see that. But with her, right, yeah. I mean, I, I know a lot of these performers have their, their inner demons, and, and it's, it's a two-sided coin. It's, it's what, in many cases, ultimately destroys them, but it also it's what makes, makes them so great when they're on stage or in front of the cameras. I mean, what, yeah. uh, what was going on with Freddie Prinze at the time? I mean, here he had this successful TV show. He was a, success, a successful stand-up comedian. And then I remember the day I was over at my friend's house, uh, Tom Balin's house, in, just down uh, the, the street in Brantford, Ontario. And we were, we were playing hide-and-go-seek in his basement, and we had the radio on. And the announcement came on that Freddie Prince had just killed himself. And, you know, I'm 13 at the time. Uh, absolutely floored by that. What Isn't it funny how we yeah. remember uh, things like that? It is. Yeah. Um, well, uh, like so many who got entangled in that, you know, JFK assassination research, uh, like he died of curious circumstances on... Uh, uh, January in 77, only 22 years of age, and there were some oddities about uh, that. And um, so, you know, perhaps it was suicide. Maybe he was suicided. Uh, it was interesting after, after uh, and he basically blew his brains out, as I recall. I remember uh, going, wow, and I was watching some episodes of Chico and the Man, 
And I noticed on some of the episodes, he really had this look like uh, you could see behind the comic facade that there was uh, something in his eyes, some type of paranoia, or maybe maybe there was more to the story. Maybe he feared for his life, and maybe rightfully so. That brings us to, uh, as we sort of move along again chronologically, with Adam Gorightly talking about the dead, uh, dead comedian conspiracy, so we've moved from Lenny Bruce in the mid-60s to Freddie Prinz in the uh, late 70s to uh, John Belushi, uh, which I believe was, what, 1981. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, another suspected uh, drug overdose. Uh, John Belushi, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> again, not one, you know, as I watched him uh, sort of growing up on Saturday Night Live, who struck me as being sort of political, uh, not certainly on SNL anyway. We remember him, of course, from the Blues Brothers with Dan Aykroyd and the Samurai, uh, the Samurai, uh, uh, the Samurai character and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and from you know, those, those great movies, Animal House and 1941. When, what, what got John Belushi, uh, perhaps, uh, on the wrong side of these black ops, in your estimation? Well, let me share... Uh the story I heard, and this uh, came from Dick Gregory originally. So let's let's talk a little bit uh, about Dick Gregory before we talk about uh, John Belushi, just to set the stage. So, you know, Dick Gregory was this comedian, much um, was like a colleague of Lenny Bruce, and he broke free of the black stereotypes, and he got involved in the civil rights movement, anti-war stuff. But he became this uh, quote-unquote conspiracy theorist, um, and uh, he was looking into things. He uh, brought forth the Zapruder film. Actually, was the one who helped uh, put the uh, three tramp photos, you know, in Daily Plaza. Uh, helped to release those. The guy was involved in a lot of stuff, and so in the uh, early '80s, when I was starting to get into uh, these subjects were starting to fascinate me. I used to listen to a, a public radio station, and they would play uh, Dick Gregory lectures after hours, pretty late, you know, like uh, one or two in the morning. He'd get into all this conspiracy stuff, and one time he brought up John Belushi, and that John Belushi had been the victim of a political assassination. And uh, it, was, it basically revolved around a bunch of Hollywood deaths, uh, Natalie Wood's death and uh, William Holden's death. And it was kind of all wrapped up in that uh, William Holden uh, was uh, Ronald Reagan's best man at his wedding and that somehow Reagan had shared some uh, state secrets uh, some dirt, uh, about the Reagan administration that ended up getting Holden... Uh, murdered. His death at the time, around the same time as Natalie Wood, seemed to be an accident. As And, of course, we know about Natalie Wood's uh, uh, strange death. Recently, they reopened the investigation for a short period of time, but I don't know if anything came of it. Uh, Natalie Wood was uh, married to Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner uh, was uh, new Stephanie Powers. They were on that show, Heart to Hearts. <laughs> Stephanie Powers was William Holden's girlfriend, and apparently they were all connected, and that's what led to these deaths. And according to Dick Gregory, John Belushi was investigating these deaths. 
And also, on top of that, uh, Belushi also had some information about the uh, Kennedy assassination. He contacted, like Freddie Prince, um, he, uh, Freddie Prince had uh, Belushi contacted Dick Gregory and Mark Lane in this regard, and was preparing to meet with Mark Lane to uh, disclose some of this information. Uh, scheduled to meet him the day before Belushi died in his bungalow there. He was at the Chateau Marmont in uh, Hollywood. That's quite a landmark. I've driven by it many times, and and, and uh, you can't help but think when you drive by, uh, yeah. you know, that faithful uh, March 5th, 1982 night when uh, he he died apparently of um, of a speedball administered by uh, Catherine Smith, who I guess was kind of a... Well, how would you describe Catherine Smith? She was kind of a, a groupie to the stars. Uh, I know that she at one point uh, was intimately uh, involved with Canadian troubadour Gordon Lightfoot. And you remember that song, uh, Sundown? Uh, he wrote that song about Catherine Smith. Yeah. Well, she's one of these shadowy characters that might be uh, fulfilling a role, you know. Uh, who knows? Uh, the stories are interesting. The news reports that came out, the first news reports about Belushi's death said there was no, uh, he died of natural causes, whatever that meant. There was no signs of uh, drug paraphernalia, drug uh, use. Over a period of about a week, the story morphed into the more popular one we know, that he was this uh, loathsome creature, you know, like Lenny Bruce, who... Uh, did himself in with a needle. So, uh, if this was the case, then obviously it would have to involve the uh, the coroner's office, the LA County Coroner's Office. Uh, now, was uh, do we know who performed the autopsy on Belushi? Was it Thomas Noguchi? Yeah. Interesting. That, that was his last official uh, autopsy. Then he was removed for, from his job for some from some reason. Um, for the second time, the first one being the fact that he refused to back down from his original autopsy finding on uh, Robert F. Kennedy. He yeah. was later reinstated. Uh, so this was his last official autopsy. And, mm-hmm. and uh, did he, the, the, I mean, what were, were his findings? Did he concur that this was, uh, you know, death by drug misadventure? Uh, it's, it, as I recall, it wasn't real uh, clear what... Uh, <laughs> His findings were. I'd have to look into my uh, notes some more. But uh... it's interesting, though. All these, all these uh, comedians, uh, the, uh, they uh, they lead a trail th- that goes back to Dick Gregory. They yeah. all seem to have been in contact with Dick Gregory at some point. Well, that's that's quite interesting. You know, and I got I mentioned in the article. You know, there's a couple of ex- uh, uh, exceptions to the rule. You know, these really politically active, controversial uh, comedians, and uh, I pointed towards uh, Dick Gregory and, of course, George Carlin with a pretty long life. The thing about uh, Dick Gregory, it's interesting. I heard him uh, in a recent interview in the last year or so, and uh, he, you know, somebody was asking him, how come you've lived so long, you know, besides he's an active, you know, very uh, advocate of... Uh, good health, he's a vegetarian, uh, these type of things. Um, but he uh, said during, uh, this was like a clue, during 9-11, he has a lot of contacts in the intelligence community. 
which isn't to suggest he's a spook, but that he has friends within the community that are looking out for him for whatever reason. And uh, these are also the uh, folks who share information with him. And one tidbit of information they shared. This Adam, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a little cliffhanger. I'm going to get you to hold on to that. We'll talk about Dick Gregory uh, when we come back as we talk about the dead comedian conspiracy here on The Conspiracy Show. There's a little bit of Freddie Prinze uh, coming back from the break there as we talk about uh, the dead comedian conspiracy. Uh, Lenny Bruce, Freddie Prinze, as I just mentioned, John Belushi, Sam Kinison, Bill Hicks. There was a great one we lost all too soon. George Carlin, uh, up in his 70s, but I could have stood another 10, 20 years of uh, uh, the brilliance of George Carlin. And we'll, we'll talk about George uh, with Adam Gorightly here in a few moments. Uh, although I have to say, George Carlin... After his wife passed away, George got real bitter uh, just towards humanity in general, and it was kind of difficult for me to watch him uh, near the end, uh, almost seeing this great mind just kind of unraveling and almost giving up. Uh, of course, we lost him to uh, supposed heart failure, but may- maybe Adam uh, Gorightly will disabuse us of, of that. Uh, but he was certainly very political and, and a, uh, uh, probably more than any of these, I would say, towards the latter half of his life, uh, just outing. Uh, the elites that he said that ran this country and and, uh, going on talk shows like with Bill Maher saying how your vote does not count. Uh, George Carlin may be the most subversive of all the uh, the comedians we're talking about. Uh, We just, um, uh, let's see, where were we? We talked about John Belushi. uh, Oh, we were talking about Dick Gregory, uh, Adam, and you were saying that Dick Gregory, here's another very subversive political comedian who has survived now into his 80s. You were suggesting he had some, has some friends in the intelligence organizations who may be watching out for him. Uh, and uh, you were mentioning uh, an incident during 9-11. Yeah, this comes from uh, Dick Gregory. I heard this in an interview oh, in the last year or so, and he said he was in uh, New York, uh, prior to 9-11, <laughs> the day before 9-11. And he was there, whatever, doing some a lecture or something like that, and got a uh, call from one of his friends within the intelligence community, the same folks who apparently uh, share a lot of information and whatnot with him, and they said, uh, basically, you need to get out of New York right now. And so... Uh, he did exactly that. I think he traveled to uh, Washington, and uh, that's when 9-11 went down. You know, his contacts probably just heard something was going to happen in New York, uh, which isn't to say it would have uh, Gregory would have been at the uh, towers, but uh, there was enough information to, you know, uh, get him moving. So, you know, apparently Gregory's been around for a long time. He has all these contacts. He has his ear to the ground. He probably has a lot of information stored away that he's uh, kind of uh, protected himself over the years. You know, nobody's uh, in a hurry to see him die now. Maybe (laughs) that's, uh, you know, uh, maybe some of that information would get released. Maybe that's what's, uh, you know, protecting him. Because he has been a insider all these years, uh, you know, and I've referred to all this information he knows about in regards to uh, all these various assassinations. One of my favorite uh, comedians uh, uh, of all time, Sam Kinison. Uh, here was a guy who would, uh, just for kicks, he would see if he could clear the room 
I mean, his talk about blue humor. Uh, yeah. And you know, on a given night, I have a, a pretty good appetite for that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, I hope that doesn't come as a disappointment to some of my listeners. But, you know, we all have those moments. And, and, and Sam Kinison uh, would do that. He, he would just, you know, uh, he'd start tearing into people and, oh, there goes another one. And he loved it. Oh, but, I love that clip you uh, played about the uh, starving children in Africa. Nobody wants that to happen, but um, he's the one, you know, in that clip he was pointing out the hypocrisy. <laughs> Send a film crew to Africa to... Uh, uh, you know, make a documentary about the uh, starving children while uh, the film crew is rolling. That's right. Feed them. <laughs> right. I mean, and, yeah, and that's you use the word hypocrisy. That's that really encapsulates what he was about, pointing out the hypocrisy, uh, which is why he resonated so. I think. But again, taken too early, thirty-eight years old, driving his '69 Pontiac Trans Am, and uh, struck head-on on U.S. Route 95. Uh, and it wasn't a serious accident, apparently, or it didn't appear to be, but he got out, got out of the car, walked around, and then just collapsed. Yeah. Um, so what can you tell me about, uh, about you know, why Sam Kinison may have been taken out and, and who may have done it, and were there unusual circumstances surrounding that accident? Well, you know, once again, uh, who knows for sure, but he's from that list. Uh, he, you know, he meets the criteria... Uh, if you look all the, at all these guys, isn't it quite interesting, you know, that uh, all the great ones seem to go down or something tragic happens to them, whether it's, uh, you know, this, what happened to uh, Richard Pryor or Bill Hicks, who was a uh, colleague of Kennison, and on and on and on, you know, the, really the best and the brightest. Uh, why? Uh, who knows? He... Uh, he uh, touched the nerve somewhere. He did something that, uh, you know, was, he was definitely anti-establishment uh, comedian. So uh, who knows, but it was an odd accident, and as you mentioned, he uh, climbed out of the wreckage and was walking around and seemed to be okay, then all of a sudden he... Uh, started uh, talking to himself and uh, one of the words he said uh, I have it here in my article somewhere if I can dig it out but it was like all of a sudden he said I don't want to die I don't want to die and then he said okay 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 and then he uh, suddenly uh, collapsed and uh, they couldn't revive him I speculate you know being the conspiracy theorist, maybe those were the MK Ultra voices in his head. I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but maybe uh, you know th- that is what's going on in a lot of these uh, cases. It's uh, the establishment in whatever form or guise against the uh, anti-establishment comedians or rock mu- musicians. All right, Adam, hold on. Stay with us. We'll uh, take a time out, come back, continue to talk about the dead comedian conspiracy. Adam Go Rightly, crackpot historian, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. There's a little bit of George Carlin for you, and we'll, we, we will talk about uh, the late, great George Carlin before the uh, hour is uh, up with Adam Go Rightly, uh, who has just penned... Um, gonna penned. <laughs> Talk about a techno-peasant. Nobody writes long form anymore. <laughs> anyway, he's just uh, written a, a wonderful article. Uh, when is this uh, appearing in Paranoia Magazine? Is it out now? 
No, this will be out in the uh, summer issue whenever that comes out. All right, and it's the Dead Comedian Conspiracy. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Bill Hicks, another one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, I, I play Bill Hicks clips regularly on this show uh, whenever we talk about JFK because if, if there was a guy who talked about JFK, uh, it was Bill Hicks. I mean, he had whole routines about the absurdity of the lone gunman and the single, the magic bullet theory and all that. I mean, if there was a guy who put himself out there, um, you know, on stage talking about this more than any other, it was Bill Hicks. And then suddenly, you know, a, he up and dies of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. He was, uh, you know, very uh, vocal about uh, the first Bush regime and the war over there. And, yeah, they did very heavy into the JFK assassination. Uh, boy, yeah, totally. Brilliant, a brilliant comic. Uh, loved Bill Hicks. And, uh, you know... What can you say? It was odd, right? Uh, once again, like a, a Freddie Prince, uh, even Richard Pryor was really at the top of his game when he had his uh, unfortunate weirdness that started happening to him. Bill Hicks was uh, about at that point where he was going to really take off, I think. And then all of a sudden he dies of this pancreatic cancer uh, uh, you know, the type of cancer, the fast-acting stuff that uh, you see take down other people, similarly like uh, Mae Russell or Jack Ruby, you know, people appointed to them. Uh, it happened to Bill, you know, very young. Uh, that was uh, early 90s, and he was in his uh, early 30s. It shouldn't have happened, you know, but it did. Uh, why him? Uh, like so many others. Apparently in one of his last routines, he said, good people always die and the demons continue to run amok. That was one of his last uh, appearances, apparently. Great. Yeah, you've been playing some great clips tonight. That one from uh, Carlin pretty much sums up <laughs> anything uh, I would have to say, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that there might have been uh, uh, something... Al uh, fishy about his death. Uh, at the time, you know, he, he lived a pretty long life. He had these cardiac uh, problems, but uh, toward the end, he was really uh, sticking it uh, to the New World Order, so to speak. Uh, I'll never forget his appearance, I mentioned earlier, on the Bill Maher show uh, yeah. with some, some political uh, uh, pundits uh, talking about, I'm not sure if it was the uh, the 2008 uh, presidential election or primary season, because he died, I think, in 2008. Um, so the lead up to that election, and uh, they were they were talking, you know, politics as usual, um, who was going to win and why, and and uh, and uh, here's George Carlin just cutting to the chase and saying, "You're talking nonsense. None of this matters. It's just a show," <laughs> yeah. and uh, people started in the they started applauding. Uh, and uh, the the, uh, the pundits they didn't know it didn't it didn't compute they didn't know how to react because here was someone coming at it from an entirely different direction it had never been well, said like that yeah. on, on 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 television in such a mainstream television that way no BS and to the point and uh, that shows you the <laughs> the power of uh, comedians you know that that he would have that such a reaction from the crowd, you know, that wasn't anticipated. But, right. you know, that, that's uh, 
that simmering there in the uh, populace, you know, what he was uh, articulating during that period that uh, you're fooled. You, we don't have any power, really. Uh, it's all an illusion, uh, you know. <laughs> well, of course, we all remember Carlin from the uh, the early 70s and his his uh, battles. Um, uh, like Winnie Bruce. Yes, with you know the seven words that you can't say on television and so forth, and that got in, got him into a lot of hot water with the uh, I guess was it the FCC. Yeah. Um, but I find that I, I think you know now that stuff sort of seems fairly tame uh, forty years later. But I found that George Carlin got more subversive, more dangerous, if you will, to the establishment as he got older. I, well, I think so. I agree with you. Towards the end, there he was. Uh... Really, what he wasn't mincing his words. And did Carlin have a, a long association with with Dick Gregory as well? Uh, that's funny you should ask. I've never uh, looked into that. Uh, not that I know of. Who have I uh, not mentioned uh, on, on the list? There was oh Richard Pryor. Uh, yeah. Richard Pryor, of course, uh, uh, preceded. Uh, you know both Bill Hicks and George Carlin, I believe, in in, in passing, and he languished with, with uh, I believe, um, uh, multiple yeah, sclerosis uh, for many many years. But mm-hmm. prior to that, back in the early '80s, there was that incident when he was seen running out of his house in some Tony neighborhood, uh, Beverly Hills, perhaps, on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was set aflame uh, supposedly while attempting to freebase cocaine. The, the story uh, kind of changed, you know. You heard different versions from Richard uh, Pryor. I was going to mention earlier uh, Freddie Prince uh, when he was putting, trying to uh, do a national telethon and uh, to uh, raise money to look into the uh, Kennedy assassinations. Uh, Richard Pryor was on board for that effort. So, you know, Pryor was interested in these subjects, and once again, you know, he was one of those very iconoclastic uh, comedians out of the mold of uh, Lenny Bruce, really pushing the envelope, you know, like uh, Carlin and Hicks, and they <laughs> they were all in the same club. And so, you know, Pryor, he was really at the top of his game when that uh, quote-unquote accident happened in when early 80s, I guess it was in 1980, you know, and... uh, Wasn't expected to survive. I mean, he had burns to, uh, I don't know, 70% of his body, serious burns. Yeah. And, you know, there was different stories. One that, uh, yeah, he was freebasing cocaine and uh, somehow set himself on fire or that he intentionally uh, doused himself with Bacardi and set himself ablaze, but... uh, who knows, perhaps uh, uh, somebody else besides himself said, uh, you know, uh, maybe it was done to him. Uh, but ultimately, of course, he was uh, silenced uh, by MS. So, yeah, I mean, totally. what is your what is your, your gut tell you, or after researching this, I mean, if you were to place uh, bets or a bet, <laughs> that the likes of Prinz and Bruce and Belushi and Kinnison and Hicks and Carlin and Pryor uh, and others that we haven't mentioned tonight were targeted for assassination as part of a CIA-FBI counterintelligence program. What, what would you say the likelihood is? I would bet more on the likelihood, you know. Um, it's, 
it's impossible to say for sure, you know. <laughs> I'd be foolish because I don't have enough evidence to say that, but yeah, my gut tells me, yes, this is what's going on. What, what do you think? I don't know about in each and every case. Yeah. Um, but I certainly believe that, uh, you know, here we have today, for example, uh, and I, I, I believe that this power has, has been exercised for a long time, but it's only recently come to light. And that is we now know that the president has uh, an assassination list uh, and will order the assassination of U.S. citizens if they are considered to be terrorists. Uh, now, we are, we are repeatedly told that, that that will never happen on U.S. soil. Um, I don't necessarily buy that. And uh, uh, never mind the president. I, 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 I believe that people like J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and I realize you know he's not here to defend himself, but I think it's pretty well documented. Uh, you, you, you can find Hoover's fingerprints in the deaths of not only Jack Kennedy, but Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and, well, and on know, and on it goes. So and I, also the whole COINTELPRO program, which targeted these radical activists, uh, such as members of the uh, Black Panther Party, but, uh, you know, theoretically, uh, Lenin was per- uh, persecuted by the uh, government, and I think was part of that program as well. So, you know, where does it stop? Uh, indeed, where does it stop? Um I don't know. What do you what do you make of the the, the current crop of, of comedians? Is there anyone out there uh, that compares to the the the, uh, the luminaries that we discussed tonight in terms of their subversive nature? I was trying to think of. Um, uh, you mentioned him in the article. He um, Patrice O'Neill. Patrice O'Neill. Now yeah, he was sort I wasn't of familiar with him. I was a lot of times all uh, when I'm working on these. Uh, Ideas. I put a post in Facebook. What uh, comedians do you think uh, might have been uh, victims of a uh, conspiracy? You know, uh, that uh, silenced them by assassination. And uh, somebody posted Patrice O'Neill, and I hadn't heard of him before. Then I got up on YouTube, and yeah, he was uh, coming from you know the same school of the uh, Priors and Lenny Bruces, and I. He was often a uh, guest on the Alex Jones show, and once again, he was very vocal, and he was into uh, basically the same uh, line of thought that Carlin was towards the end of his life, a totally, uh, or a very anti-New World Order approach in his uh, comedy. And um, shortly after, it was like in... uh, he started becoming vocal about these things. He met another strange death. He had like a, you know, he was a relatively young man, had a uh, stroke or something of that nature. It could be similar to uh, MS, uh, you know. <laughs> Who knows what is bringing on these uh, things. And uh, then uh, shortly afterwards, he lost his ability to speak and move and uh, uh, shortly after died at the... Uh, young age of 41 years of age. This all happened, uh, you know, within the uh, period of about uh, a month or so. 
And uh, again, another one we didn't uh, just discuss previously, but you know, ranked right up there with uh, with some of the great all time comedians is uh, Dave Chappelle. Uh, who I believe you talked about, and, and now here is a, an African American comedian uh, who um, still with us, but uh, was sort of some speculate silenced. He had that very popular uh, um, uh, television show in the early two thousands, and then suddenly after season three, just walked away from the program, and I think moved to South Africa. Yeah, I was sorting through all these conspiracies, and somebody mentioned to me, well, maybe Dave Chappelle, uh, Chappelle should be added to your list. He, As you mentioned, he signed this big, fat, lucrative uh, $50 million contract with Comedy Central, you know, after, well, this is after two or three years of uh, his series, The Chappelle Show. And so he was on the uh, top of the world, and all of a sudden he bailed out on this contract uh, uh, ran to, uh, fled to South Africa, some people says, said. And there's a uh, website up called the Dave Chappelle Conspiracy where a uh, certain Hollywood-type lawyer agent who uh, remains unnamed claims that there was a, a conspiracy, a group of uh, black comedians who... Uh, uh, basically had a falling out with Chappelle. Among them, uh, oh, such people as Bill Cosby, not only black comedians, but black uh, leaders like Al Sharpton. And, uh, I, wish, I wish we had more time to discuss uh, Chappelle, David, but listen, er, Adam, sorry, it's been a great uh, hour. We'll have to do it again soon. Uh, great article, The Dead Cons- Comedian Conspiracy, coming to the summer issue of Paranoia Magazine. Adam, always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, sir. All right. Tim Spreen, thanks for uh, production. Some great clips tonight. Back next week, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and a World Bank whistleblower Canadian exclusive. Until then, good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.